Morning, church. Truth declared. I trust that we believe it. We want to live it. And it's reality in each of our lives. The demons run and flee at the mention of the name of Jesus. The question we've been wrestling with goes like this. Is it possible to remain aware of God's presence every waking moment? Can we attain that? That's a profound question. A question that Frank Laubach, a missionary to the Philippines back in the 1930s, spent his whole life attempting to answer. And so over these last months, we've also been wrestling with that question. We started a sermon series way back in January called Practicing the Presence of God. This is a continuation of that series called Practicing His Presence in Prayer, specifically. And so we started on this last week. If you missed that message, it's available online. It is foundational to understanding what we'll be talking about the next four or five weeks or so as we dig into this whole idea. Is it possible to remain in God's presence continually throughout the day? Rather than having him compartmentalized into this uh, 10 o'clock hour on Sunday mornings or your early morning devotions or whenever else it's time to be spiritual and breaking him out of that God box so that he, in fact, is present with us every moment. Is that possible? Well, hmm. Last week, as we began, we learned a few things by way of review. These are things we already know and understand for those of us that follow Jesus. Uh, we understand that God is speaking. God is speaking. That's the first blank in your sermon notes if you'd like to follow along. God is speaking. He is speaking constantly. That is a truth of Scripture. Uh, here's uh, some thoughts from the book of Job. God speaks again and again, though people do not recognize it. He speaks in dreams and visions. When a deep sleep falls on people, he whispers in their ears. God is speaking in a variety of ways uh, to people who don't believe and people who do believe. I am particularly intrigued by the number of Muslims coming to Jesus uh, as he speaks to them in dreams. Now, let me just ask you, so you don't feel quite so weird and awkward, how many of you have experienced God in a dream? Raise your hand. Good. How many of you have experienced the devil or his workers in a dream? Hmm, That's intriguing. Okay. And I know you're all kind of tentative because you're Eastern Wisconsin folk to kind of raise your hand like, that's weird. I don't know. I don't want to admit that. Uh, But understand the, the supernatural is constantly attempting to connect with what we go through on a daily basis. But God is speaking. Here's what the writer of Hebrews said. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. Who is the son? Jesus. Say that name with me. Very good. Right. And so now God has chosen to speak through his son. Now the son speaks in a variety of ways to us. And it's not just the Bible. It is primarily the Bible because everything that we sense God may be saying has to be confirmed by the Scripture because He is the Word of God and the Word of God is truth, correct? So everything that we think God is saying, I don't care if it's a dream or where it's coming from, must be confirmed 
by the word of God. And so Jesus would say this, the son would say this, since God is speaking through his son in these last days, my sheep listen to my voice. My voice is constantly speaking, he is saying. And my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. But the question then becomes, are we listening? If God is constantly speaking, are we listening? Are we tuned in throughout the day? Or is it just when we happen to be in prayer doing something we consider spiritual that we listen to what God says? And so uh, some thoughts about that. The psalmist wrote, I listen carefully to what the Lord is saying, for he speaks peace to his faithful people. And then Jeremiah recorded these words from the Lord. Who will listen when I speak? Their ears are closed and they cannot hear. They scorn the word of the Lord. They don't want to listen at all. And that was written to the people of God, by the way. They don't want to listen at all. How about you? You enjoy listening to what God's saying? Now, uh, the spiritual folks say, yeah, I'm always listening. But I think we practice selective listening, selective hearing when it comes to the voice of the Lord. When it's good stuff like, I'm going to heal you, I'm going to provide for you, or I'm going to get you out of the situation, we're all ears. But we have this tendency, you see, uh, when God is saying some difficult things to us, uh, we don't quite want to listen to that. Even though it's the truth. And we can kind of dial that back just a notch or two. Uh, God, I want your voice to sound like this. It sounds real good when it's coming in like this. But man, when it sounds like that, I'm not so sure I want to listen to this. This is hard to hear. You know what that's like. God sometimes says some things that are quite hard to hear. Right? So are we listening? We also discovered last week that uh, prayer, in essence, is communication with God. It's communication With the living God. It connects us to our Father in heaven. Now, we would agree that communication is key for every healthy relationship, right? Communication is key for every every healthy relationship. Whether it's grandpa to grandson, right? Communication is key, right? To a healthy and growing relationship. Any relationship that is built on only happening when there is a crisis is in trouble, And imagine you're sitting there with your spouse or a loved one or think of a loved one, and the only time you communicated to them is in a crisis. How deep is that relationship going to be? Not very deep. No, not very deep at all. And so if we're in the habit of just calling out to God when we're in crisis, uh, there's a whole lot more depth there, a whole lot more depth. And prayer, in its essence, is simply communicating to God. Prayer is a sacred and sweet dialogue between two persons in love. That is perhaps my favorite definition of prayer. It's sacred and sweet dialogue between two people in love. Does God love you? Prove it to me. Give me some verses that remind us that God loves you right now just the way you are. John 3.16. Let's say it together. For God... For God so loved, right, give me another verse or two. You say God is love, you religious Christians, jeez. A little louder? Now, I'll try reading John three seventeen sometime. 
because that's the truth. Okay, good, excellent. Give me another one. Okay, where's that found? That's very good. Anybody know where that's found? First John. Okay, anyway, give me another one. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? Be thinking with me. We say that God loves us. What does the Bible say about that? It's sacred and sweet dialogue between two people in love. God desires a love relationship with you and with me. That's why he sent his son. Because he wants a love relationship, not a servant relationship, a love relationship with each of us. And he demonstrates his love again and again and again. Prayer releases the power and authority of God. We're going to be talking about that today, more specifically next week, as we talk about warfare praying. Warfare praying. Prayer releases the power and authority of God. We've already talked about the fact that demons run and flee before him because he is Jesus. Prayer produces powerful kairos moments. We've been talking a lot about kairos and chronos and all that kind of thing over the past months. And as we regularly process kairos prayer moments, in other words, those moments when God is breaking in, the supernatural is breaking in to our everyday chronological lives, when those moments happen, we can better understand then Paul's command in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing, pray continually, or never stop praying, depending on your translation. That, by the way, at no extra charge, is the shortest verse in the Bible. Some of you may think, no, it's John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept, not true, it's two words. This is one word in Greek. This is the shortest verse in the Bible. Pray continually. Pray without ceasing. Never stop praying. Wow. Wow. And as we're processing these Kairos moments, we're going to pick up on this thought in just a moment. As we're processing these moments, we are then building disciples for Jesus as we encounter him moment by moment, day by day, and are transformed in his image. That is discipleship. All right? We also talk about an extremely powerful tool within evangelical Christianity in America used all over the place to control behavior and maintain conformity. Anybody remember what that word is? Guilt. You got it. It's guilt. It's a tool that, when properly used, can lay a heavy burden on Jesus' followers to ensure religious compliance. It's deadly. Guilt, shame. Used as tools is extremely deadly. Having lived overseas in shame-based education, it becomes a way of life and ingrained in a person. And we're constantly living under guilt uh, we are going to respond and, and live out our lives in that fashion, and it's terrible. It's terrible. Because God did not come to condemn the world through guilt, but rather to set us free from that. There is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt involved for those who are in Christ Jesus, correct? It's an extremely powerful tool. How do I know? I've been the recipient of it. People in my life over the years have attempted to use guilt to change my behavior or motivate me to do something. How does that work? How does that work for you when people use guilt? You like it? Some of us can't even sense it. Others are real keen to jump right on it. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. How do I know? 
I've been the recipient of that. People want me to change, even as a pastor. People think they try to guilt and use scripture and do all kinds of stuff. It's just the way things function sometimes, right? And how do I know? Because I've used it. I've used it as a tool. I've used it as a tool as a parent. I've used it on my wife, and I've used it in the church. And it breaks my heart when God brings that to my attention that I have used guilt to attempt to motivate and control behavior, to manage and manipulate outcomes using guilt to do that. And as I shared with you last week, if any of you sense that I've ever used that in your life, you come to me because I want to make that right with you. That is not Christ-like in any way, shape, or form. And so as we think about guilt... The result in the church today is bondage and boredom and performance. And we're doing all these things because we're guilted into because we're supposed to. We should have. We ought to. We, this is the way Christians act. Oh, where's the love there? Where's the love? It's shadow truth. It kills the spirit of a person. It can kill the spirit of an entire church. And everything's motivated by guilt and what we're supposed to be doing. Ouch. So when it comes to prayer, I want to get that out of the way right up front. Every one of us, if I asked you, would say, how's your prayer life? Oh, I don't pray enough. I don't pray enough. Pretty soon the guilt and shame just comes down. I don't pray enough. I don't pray like I should. Right, okay, let's get that out of the way. None of us do. None of us do. We're all in process here. But rather, how about we fall so deeply and passionately in love with God that we want to pray, that we want to communicate, that we want to listen to Him? How's that for motivation? Because it's based on love and not on guilt and shame. That's what Jesus is all about. Drawing us in with His love. With His love. Not with His religion, but love. So, out of the way. Out of the way. Now, If we desire to remain in God's presence on a continual basis, it's not going to be easy. But then again, nothing worthwhile in life is easy. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Those of you that are older understand that. Nothing worthwhile in life comes easy over the long haul. So let's get rolling. Let me ask you, do you believe in a spiritual world that is unseen by our physical eyes? Do you believe there's something more that's out there than what we can see and touch and taste and feel. Do you believe that? How can we even know there is a spiritual realm? You can't see it. So how do you know it's even there? If we can't see it, should we believe it? Can you believe in something you can't see? Now, many don't want to deal with the world we can't see when the world we can see is impossible to deal with. So don't keep that on me by saying you got to believe in this. Which I guess I got enough trouble as it is, right? I don't need this whole other stuff. But before we can discuss warfare praying, we have to understand there is a spiritual realm. There is a spiritual realm. Many other places in the world accept the unseen spiritual realm. In fact, almost more readily than they do this world in which we can see and touch and taste and feel. That is far more real than this, because they know that this is temporary. That is forever. And so there is this mindset shift that happens that includes the supernatural in the daily. For us here in the West, not quite so much many times. In fact, sometimes in our Western world, we have a tendency to act like a two-year-old toddler who closes her eyes 
pulls her blankie up over her head, actually believing that no one can see her because she can't see them. And that's the way we kind of do our Christianity. Well, I'm not going to believe that. I'll just pull the blanket over my head. It's nice and safe in here, right? Ah, huh. Now, I'm assuming you are here because you either agree that there is a spiritual realm or you're considering. Cool. I'm glad you're here. Now, if we agree with that assumption that there is a spiritual realm, then we need to acknowledge the reality that within the spiritual realm, just as in our realm, this physical realm, there is good and evil. And those two things are constantly clashing against each other. The two sides are at war. This means we are also in a war, and by definition, wars involve a conflict between two persons or factions or armies who are engaging in any type of extended contest, struggle, or controversy, according to Webster Merriam Dictionary. All right? So, again, two persons or factions or armies who are engaging in any type of extended contest, struggle, or controversy. Now, in the spiritual realm, there are two people in conflict. Who are they? Good and evil, correct? Jesus and Satan, Satan, right? God and the forces of evil, yes, all coming, colliding, and each of them has an army along with them, right? And so these two armies are clashing together. Now, this is happening in the heavenlies, but uh, on many occasions it bursts out into our own souls and into our daily existence. The war is going on, in fact. Now, as Jesus' followers, the Bible teaches we are in a spiritual battle of some sort on a daily basis. It's reality. It's reality. In spiritual warfare, our battles are real encounters, even though we can't usually physically see our opponent. Makes him kind of hard to hit, right? When you can't see him. Ah, or does it? Now, sadly, most Bible colleges and seminaries today are no longer equipping and training future workers when it comes to this idea of spiritual warfare. There's only a handful of schools in this country that are even teaching these principles of future pastors and missionaries. Now, I can teach you how to run a church. I can teach you leadership principles. I can teach you spiritual formation. I might even teach you some good theology. But many have backed off on the fact that there is a spiritual war going on. And how do we handle when we're engaged in this conflict? Not so many schools teach that anymore. That's a concern of mine. Yet I assure you, there is a battle and a war going on no matter what you believe or don't believe. Really don't give a rip because it's true. And whether you believe it or not, It doesn't change anything. It's just plain truth according to the Word of God. Now, ultimately, the spiritual war is being played out in the heavenlies. Jesus has come. Jesus has conquered. We just sang about that, right? Just sang about that. The war is already won. Pastor Michael mentioned that. Jesus told us in Matthew 28, 18, just before he ascended, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And you just read that passage of Scripture from Philippians, did you not? (laughs) That that name that has been given is above every name in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. He is the Lord of all. He is the King of kings. But spiritual battles continue in each of our lives, even though the ultimate outcome is already secure. That's decided. But the battles still go on. We're going to talk more about that next week. Now, it takes two to fight. 
And all the married people said, all right, we all agree. Takes two to fight. Jesus came to set the captives free. Free from what? Sin. Okay, I like that bunch. Sure. While Jesus is the deliverer, Satan is the destroyer. Jesus is the author of salvation. Satan is the tempter to sin. Jesus' death on that cross, his resurrection was open warfare that has freed us from the grip of Satan. Now, back in our November study of 1 John, when we were in chapter 3, we learned this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Did he do that? Did he do that in your life? Well, not quite so. Did he do it in your life? So why do you still sin then? Because the battle goes on, right? The outcome's been decided, but the battle continues. Though Satan is defeated by Christ, he's not yet fully destroyed. While we serve a victorious Savior, we face today a very dangerous defeated foe. And that's the worst kind of enemy you can have. Somebody's already beat but doesn't know it. And just keeps going at it. So let's bring out a little game film just to get an overview of this one who will flee at the name of Jesus. First of all, he's sneaky. He's sneaky. Satan's demons do not specialize in frontal attacks. They're terrorists in the true sense of the word. They're sly, sneaky creatures. It's too obvious when you can see the train coming. He doesn't play that game, right? Often it's kind of like a little toothache. How many of you ever had a little toothache, right? It's not bad enough to make you stop and go to the dentist and actually do something about it, but it just kind of keeps you off and a little uncomfortable, right? (laughs) All right, yeah, yeah. He's sly, he's sneaky, and he's always picking, always poking. Secondly, he's a finite creation. This one takes some thought. Who made Satan? God did. I agree with that. Does God control Satan? (laughs) Okay, that's an interesting thought. Does God control Satan? If you say that God is sovereign, what does that mean? Do you believe that God, according to Psalms, controls everything? He controls everything. Does God control Satan? (laughs) Good. You're not quite so certain about that, are you? Interesting. God controls everything, friends. He controls everything. Make no mistake about that. Satan is not free from the control of God. We'd be in big trouble if that were the case. The point I want you to think about is this. Who is Satan? Bright morning star, what's another name given to him in Scripture? Lucifer. Lucifer. What was Lucifer's job responsibility in heaven? He was an anointed cherub who, many theologians would say, was a worship leader. That's why I always have eyes on the worship leader. They're usually the first to turn. So, man, I'm watching. But understand, Satan was once good. He was a guardian of the holiness of God as anointed cherub. Now think about this. If he knows what it's like to be good, how is he going to come at you? Flat out evil? No. He's going to make you good. He's going to tempt you with good stuff. 
that's slightly off, twisted just enough to miss the mark. Be very cautious. Satan was good. He knows what holiness is. He knows how to pervert and twist so it becomes an obligation motivated through guilt rather than a love relationship which sets us free. Hmm, chew on that thought for a while. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. He's got better things to do than torment the likes of you and me. We're real low on the pole with this. So he sends his army of demons to carry out his plan. And we must be aware of how they operate. Paul would put it like this. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive, he wrote to the Corinthians. So that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Yes, we should know his basic plan of operation, not be focused on that by any means. Our focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will make him flee. Well, we should be aware. He is committed to his cause. As many of you know, I'm a real history buff between the Civil War and World War II. Uh, Satan reminds me of a kamikaze pilot. Take the sake, jump into your plane, and it's a one-way ticket. You're not coming home. Satan understands this. He's had it full time. He doesn't golf. He doesn't take vacations. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't go on breaks. He's serious about what he does. He knows his time is short, and he's furious. He's furious, and he is raging against God. He works from the outside in. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. That's what the Bible teaches, that when we come to faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is that deposit of our eternal salvation. Right, So Satan works to get at us from the outside. Now being in constant dialogue with God will mute the evil one's voice and his distractions and his accusation and his condemnation that he keeps pouring upon us as believers. But we can mute that voice as we're in the presence of God. Again, we're going to explain more about this. We must take every thought captive under the obedience of Christ. Every thought. And I'm convinced, as A.W. Tozer was, that failure as Jesus' followers is seldom a blowout, but rather a slow leak. It's a slow leak. And when we fail and when we stumble, I know in my own life, I leave the door open just a little bit. Perhaps we even leave that door ajar on purpose. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. But I guarantee you, leaving that door ajar just a little bit leads to a place we don't want to be, right? It's time to shut the door. Keep out the devil, right? Shut the door. Shut the door. There is no doubt that spiritual warfare is real. Jesus' followers have an enemy in Satan and his demons. Here's what Paul said. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to... Ephesians 6, we'll be spending some time in there this week and next week. But also, here we go. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor. And I'm not going to be talking specifically about the armor of God, just in very general terms. That's not the purpose of these messages. We're talking about prayer and warfare prayer in particular. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places i need to remind myself of this again and again and again my battle is not against that person that is that's not the enemy the enemy's the enemy my wife's not the enemy you are not the enemy 
Even unbelievers are not the enemy. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. There's people in this room who have seen it firsthand, the manifestation of this conflict in the lives of people. You know, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you story after story of deliverance sessions that I've been in with a manifestation of evil. Of a woman who, a church leader, was taking funds from the church. And when confronted, she sat right there. The eyes rolled completely back in her head so that they were pure white. She talked in a man's guttural voice, accusing and condemning me. Did the hair stand up on the back of my neck? <laughs> I'm in over my head on this one. That was the first year of ministry for me. And I'm glad I went to Tacoa where they trained us how to handle those things. I can tell you about a teenager who has been into harming themselves again and again and again under the weight of oppressive lies that has just twisted that person's mind to the point, even though they're followers and they love Jesus, can't come free from that and the manifestation of that ugliness. I'm not going to do that. Those stories are spectacular, but they're true. That's not the point of what we're talking about today. There is a war going on. In the next verses, Paul describes the armor of God to be worn in our conflict. We're not going to read, even read those. I suggest you read and study those if you haven't already. He concludes his teaching about warfare with an interesting perspective on prayer. That's what we are talking about. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Think about this first part of that verse. Pray in the Spirit at all times. Pray in the Spirit at all times. If you're going to be involved in this warfare, and we are, by the way, if you are a Jesus follower, you're involved. You're either going to be a good soldier or not so good soldier. That's the issue. We're all going to be involved, right? That goes with the territory. But those with a Jewish background in Ephesus understood that there were certain times to pray. A Jew would pray certain times every day. That was their makeup. Now, Paul elevates that to an attitude of being in prayer always, being in continual prayer. So he's kind of blowing their minds. We are told to pray in the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Now, my Pentecostal brothers, and I love them dearly, would say that means speaking in tongues. That has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. If you want to learn about speaking in tongues, you go to 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, that are the teaching passages about speaking in tongues. That's where the truth comes from, the teaching passage. Tongues is not even a factor in this whole discussion on spiritual warfare. So praying in the Spirit has nothing to do with praying in tongues. Absolutely zero. So what does it mean, then, if we are to pray in the Spirit? Okay, aligning ourselves with God in His worldview. I like that. Because where is the Holy Spirit? Where does He reside? Who is the one that's interceding for you and translating your prayers to the Father? The Holy Spirit is, right? The Holy Spirit living inside of the believer. 
we are to pray in the Spirit. I appreciate that answer, Bob. That, that's very good. I like that. I like that. It means that we live in a place of consistent God awareness. Practicing His presence. He's there, the Holy Spirit who resides in us. We are to pray in the Spirit because the Spirit resides in us. Now, uh, that's, that's cool, but I want to get to the second part. At all times. Pray in the Spirit at all times. What does at all times mean? I put it in there. It's kairos. It's kairos. It's not chronologically be constantly in prayer, you believer. You, Jesus, follow. you got to pray. you got to pray. So what do you do? You fold your hands, you bow your head, and you close your eyes. Where is that in the Bible, by the way? Huh? Where is that? Nothing wrong with that, but that's the way we pray. Okay, let's pray. Dear Jesus, I'm just having fun with you, but, but I am serious. There is no bowing your head, closing your eyes, and folding your hands. That's not in the Scripture. Okay. But he says, pray at all times. Now, this, is, this kind of just blew my mind as I was wrestling with because we talk about kairos moments. Kairos refers to a critical moment or opportunity. A critical moment or opportunity. And again, our lives are based chronologically. Chronos time is one of the two words used to describe time in Scripture that has to do with linear time, like the ticking of a clock, right? That's chronological time, or the word chronos. The other word that's used for time in Greek is kairos, which means a critical moment or opportunity. Now, Paul is saying, pray in the Spirit when? Kairos. So God is breaking into our lives continually throughout the day. It's a person, it's a voice, it's a, it's a verse, it's whatever it is. God is interacting with us, he's communicating with us, but these are kairos moments. These are critical God moments that he's bringing to us. So what do we do with those? Do we stop and do we fold our hands and bow our heads and pray? That's not at all what Paul is talking about. But he's saying when that kairos moment comes, when the supernatural breaks into the physical, into the natural world, we then maintain this posture of praying. Can you pray with your eyes open? Can you pray at your desk? Can you pray when you're reading, when you're writing, when you're watching TV? Can you pray at all times? As God is breaking in, Paul is saying, make sure you're taking advantage of these. And as these moments come and we start to stack these kairos moments up one by one, we are practicing the presence of God throughout the day. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. These kairos moments are happening continually. So what does that look like? If I'm driving in and the sun is rising and I see that, again, peeking over the horizon and it all turns orange and I say, glory to God, you are the creator. That's a Kairos moment. And I am praying and I'm thanking God that's praying in the spirit at all times. That's a Kairos moment in which I recognize the goodness and greatness of God. When I hear a siren, the first thing I've been trained to do is someone's in trouble, God help them. That is a Kairos moment. When oh my goodness, we can go on and on about that. When I see something that it's injustice, immediately I, I want to be able to turn to God and say, This isn't fair, but you are the God of justice. Work out your plan in the situation. That becomes a Kairos moment. In prayer. And I'm dialoguing with God. And that's communication with God. That's praying. Praying the Spirit on all occasions. And when I face daily trials and struggles, we ask God to sustain and deliver us. Boy, did we have one on Thursday, didn't we, Michael? 
We had a critical situation here at church. No internet all day long. Oh, let's just go home. It's the apocalypse. We're done. Save us, Jesus. No internet. How can we function here at Southside? Oh, my goodness. When we encounter someone who we know is spiritually lost, whether it's a family member we love dearly, a neighbor, whoever it is, we in that moment ask God, give me the words to say. We don't say that out loud. We don't fold our hands and bow our heads, close our eyes. Say, God, help me. Help me this moment to be Jesus to this person. What does he want me to do? What does he want me to say? God, help me here. Help me here. Now, there are a ton of Kairos moments happening around us all the time. Prayer, then, connects those dots in our lives between the very real spiritual realm and world and our daily physical lives. Prayer, then, connects those dots one to the next. You see how that works? See how that works? Yeah, yeah. And that's fantastic. God is breaking in. He's breaking in continually. And here's a Kairos story from a friend of mine. His name is David King. He followed me as the pastor of the Evangelical Church in Bangkok. Now listen to David's story about God breaking in. Right? Hello, friends from Southside Alliance Church in Sheboygan. I was really happy when uh, Pastor John Teshon contacted me and said, Hey, we'd like to connect about missions. We've sure appreciated the team. Isn't that exciting? That was a David King Kairos moment that he shared with us. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions and watch what God can do. More about that next week. More about that next week. If you haven't yet received this prayer journal, uh, we have a few copies left. Uh, They were sent to you as well, PDF. Uh, But we are going through this together as a church And uh, there's five days a week of devotions in here, all centered on prayer and what we're talking about. I encourage you, take a copy. If you don't have one, uh, they're available on your way out. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward along with Zach and Sydney as we close our service this morning. Our response to the truth of the fact that God is constantly breaking in is a, uh, a reminder that to give back to him is a way we say thank you to our great God. Cool. I'll get that, Zach. You're good. All right? So has God been faithful to you financially? If he has, why don't you thank him this morning? Yeah. And ushers, you can go ahead and receive your gifts and our gifts to the Lord this morning. Uh, This is Zach and Sydney. Can you say hi to Zach and Sydney? Great, great. Well, Zach. It's wonderful seeing you. Don't you guys just appreciate his guitar playing up there? It's just absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And I know this is a bit uncomfortable and awkward for you. Yeah. 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 But you you agreed to do it. I'm so thankful. So uh, God has been at work showing you some things uh, lately. And I thought it was important for the congregation to see you and Sydney together. And... uh, well, first, introduce yourself. Some people may not know who you are. Yeah, so like you said, for those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Zach Gallipo. Um, 
that's my dad up there. You probably know him. <laughs> um, and yeah, for those of you who are here two weeks ago, he mentioned his uh, 18-year-old son that was getting married. So that's me. This is Sydney. Um, yeah. And in this whole process of looking at getting married, finances are a big deal, aren't they? Yeah. And you're in school right now. Tell us about how God worked in that whole situation. Yeah, so um, I'm still in high school getting ready to go to college. So that paired with um, getting married and moving out obviously is um, a pretty big financial burden. So um, that was something I was kind of stressed about for a while. And um, I'm in a discipleship group with my dad and my older brother, Jacob. And pretty much the point of it is to process um, Kairos moments together. So we've been doing this for um, quite a while, probably almost a year. And... um, a few months ago, one of the, the Kairos um, that I came with was that I was struggling with tithing. Um, I didn't really want to do it. I would when I remembered, but it was um, very reluctant and kind of out of a sense of obligation. And so um, sometimes we have beliefs that we don't even realize we have. And so I wouldn't have told you this because I didn't know it myself, but um, when we got to the root of it, I had a belief that um, God didn't have um that he i didn't know that he would provide for me and um maybe that he didn't even have the best um, plan for me in mind so uh, my dad gave me kind of an exercise to align myself with god and kind of um put my trust in him so i did that and um for the next week and i came back feeling a little bit better so i got an email from lakeland um which is one of the colleges i was thinking about going to and uh, they had a tour that you could go to. And I couldn't make the date that they had in the email, but I was able to set up a personal one. And so I uh, got a tour of the campus, and I talked to a few of the staff there, including um, like one of the financial directors. And so she pointed me to two scholarships that I could apply for. One was specific to the um, their School of Humanities and Fine Arts, which includes graphic design, which is what I'm going for, um, and one was called the Sheboygan County Scholarship, which was for people who lived in Sheboygan. And so the Sheboygan County one, um, there were a few winners who would receive a full tuition scholarship to Lakeland, and the School of Humanities and Fine Arts ranged from $500 to a full tuition as well. Um, So I had a week or two, I think, to kind of apply for those and get ready, and then, um, so I, I did that, got some reference letters and all that. Um, and soon after, I received an email telling me that I had made it as a finalist in both uh, scholarships. So I went in, I interviewed for both, and um, a few weeks went by, and I found out that I had um, I'd made it as the third runner-up for the School of Humanities and Fine Arts, which meant that um, through that, God was providing me with a three-quarter scholarship to Lakeland. All right. So, uh, And that's actually not the end of it. So that obviously was great. Um, and so with that, Sydney had been kind of putting together a budget for us because there were still um, several thousand dollars per semester that I was going to have to come up with for that. Um, and so we were working through that. But just this Monday, I got a text from my admissions counselor asking me if she had seen her voicemail. And so I looked, and I didn't have a voicemail from her. Um, so I said, I didn't get anything, but what happened? And um, 
She said, I'm glad I checked with you because this is good news. One of the Sheboygan County Scholarship winners dropped out, which means that you have been moved up to a full tuition scholarship. <laughs> so even, even after I, God had provided and I had learned to trust him with that, he continued to provide above and beyond what I was expecting. So. Wonderful, wonderful. And... Are you giving online? Yes. Oh, good. Your mom and dad talked to you about that? I, I heard when they, got, when they talked about the um, church center app. Wonderful. And that makes it real easy to give, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And you don't forget. Nope. Good. So you're faithful to the Lord. He's been faithful to you. This, friends, is a Kairos moment. For this young couple. Let's thank the Lord for him, shall we? Nice job, man. Nice job. Okay. Good Absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. God is moving in so many different ways.